me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. This time we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are in pre-K up through third grade, who want to join the volunteers at the back for Children's Church, that would be great. Parents, I assume most of you have checked your kids in already, but if you haven't, you can follow them. There's a little electronic check-in. So we make sure that we give the right kids back to the right parents when church is over. That's always a win. Well, we're in, in our second week of a nine-week series that we're doing called Gospel Rebuild. We're looking at the, at the story of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a great leader. He was a great man of God. He was faithful in rebuilding the city of Jerusalem after the exile. But more than anything else, we see in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah's God was a great God. That Nehemiah's God is the God who comes to people who are standing in the middle of the rubble and he puts people back together again. That's the hope that we have because of Jesus. And so with that in mind, we turn our attention to Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I, Nehemiah, took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire." 
Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them that God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, we simply ask that you speak, for your servants listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the greatest obstacle that you've ever faced? What is the greatest thing that is standing in your way? Are people standing in your way? Are habits standing in your way? Are circumstances standing in your way? What's standing between you and happiness? What's standing between you and joy? What's standing in between you and God's plans and purposes for your life? from discovering and acting upon what God would have you discover and act upon. Sometimes we face internal obstacles. In this story, Nehemiah had to overcome the internal obstacles of sadness and fear. He grieved over the broken city of Jerusalem, and he feared the mighty king of Persia. Sometimes we face external obstacles obstacles. Nehemiah had a city to build, a whole city. He had no time, he had no money, and he had no help. Plus, he had three very dedicated opponents, vocal critics, who opposed him every step of the way. How did Nehemiah overcome his obstacles? How did Nehemiah rebuild the city of God? Hard work, Determination, therapy, cold showers, Facebook groups. The answer is faith. Nehemiah had gospel faith. Nehemiah believed the promises of God. He knew his identity. Back in chapter 1, over and over again, Nehemiah refers to himself as the servant of the living God. That word servant or servants is used 
eight times in the first 11 verses of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew who he was. He also knew his destiny. He knew that God was calling him to rebuild the city. He knew that God had put him on this earth to glorify God by rebuilding the city of God for the people of God. Do you know your identity? Do you know that you are an image bearer of the living God, created by God with dignity and worth? Do you know that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are an adopted child of God, adopted into the family of God through Jesus who died on the cross so that all of his children might be brought back home? Do you know your destiny? Do you know God's calling for your life? Do you know not only who you are, do you know why you're here? Do you know your purpose? Do you know where you're going? Nehemiah 2 shows us that gospel faith turns obstacles into opportunities. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust the promises of God, if you know who you are, if you know where you're going, then every obstacle you face is an opportunity to glorify God and serve other people. So where do we begin? If you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. First, I want us to just spend a few minutes talking about gospel faith. Nehemiah had gospel faith. What does that mean? Do you have gospel faith? Do I? What does that mean? Second, I want us to just walk through this passage verse by verse so that we can see all the ways that gospel faith turns obstacles into opportunities. I found seven ways. And so we'll walk through the text and we'll identify all of those ways. The world is filled with obstacles. We all face obstacles in life. Many of them are psychological. Some of them are emotional. Some of them are relational or environmental. All of them are spiritual. How do we overcome them? How does gospel faith turn obstacles into opportunities? Let's take a closer look. We begin with a quick word about gospel faith. What is gospel faith? What does that mean? I think it's important to know because many people in our culture view the word faith through a secular lens rather than through a biblical lens. And so many people, when we talk about faith, believe that faith is essentially a synonym for optimism. Faith is a feeling that everything will work out in the end. Now, for people who've experienced disappointment and failure in life, as many of us do, I think all all of us, if we're honest, will say that sometimes we experience disappointment and failure. People become hardened and cynical and add the qualifier blind to the word faith. Blind faith. Faith is irrational. Faith is wishful thinking. Faith is, in the words of Mark Twain, believing something that you know ain't so. So what is the Bible say? The Bible has a very different uh, perspective when it comes to faith. Gospel faith isn't just a vague sense of optimism about the world, though we are optimistic about the world because we know that ultimately Jesus wins. 
It's on the last page of the Bible. If you haven't got there yet, I encourage you to read it. It's a great story. We acknowledge that life is hard sometimes. There are challenges. Sometimes you miss the game-winning field goal. Sometimes you fail the big test. Sometimes you're an Auburn fan, and it's just a really, really rough... Just kidding, Auburn fans. We love you. But it's, it's a rough season. Listen, I'm a Nebraska fan. We've had a bad team for 20 years, so, you know, please spare me your tears about the one bad season. Christianity doesn't exempt us from suffering. Remember that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered more than anyone who has ever lived. And he's Jesus, the sinless Son of God. So when we say faith, we don't just mean, well, believe, you know, and believe in yourself and just kind of have a, a vague sense of optimism for the world. It's not that. Nor do we believe that gospel faith is blind. In fact, we believe that gospel faith opens our eyes so that we can see. Gospel faith is knowledge and assent and trust. It's looking to Jesus for hope, for love, for peace, for joy. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Gospel faith says, I believe the promises of God which are written in the word of God. My identity is in Christ. God the Son died on the cross for me. God the Holy Spirit empowers me. God the Father adopted me into his family. Am I a sinner? Yes, I sin all the time. Of course I am. But that's no longer my identity. My identity is in Christ. Do other people sin against me? Yes, of course. It happens all the time. People sin against us. And yet, again, I am not a victim. I am an adopted child of God. I belong to God. My identity is in Him. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I'm empowered. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer a slave to what other people say about me. I am free. And when Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. That is our identity in Christ. I know my, I, my destiny in Christ. Jesus rose from the dead, and so will I. Like Nehemiah, I am bound for the promised land. I know that because the gospel is true, my life has meaning. It has purpose. I have hope. When I wake up on Monday morning, I'm not just shoveling dirt. I'm not just cashing a paycheck. I'm working to build the city of God. I'm part of something much bigger than me. Praise God, I am not playing the starring role in the film that is life. I'm a supporting actor in service of the great king. And my calling in life for as many years as the Lord gives me on this earth is to point everyone to him. To say, consider Jesus Look at his beauty. Look at his love. Look at his grace. It's all about him. Nehemiah was able to overcome the obstacles he faced because he believed that ultimately God would restore the city and the people of Jerusalem. 
he believed that God would bring his people home. He prayed bold prayers and he made bold plans because of his faith. So important. Without gospel faith, then the story of Nehemiah is about a remarkable man who did things that you could never do. Is that encouraging? Does does that give you hope to face tomorrow? It shouldn't. But if you have gospel faith, then God is saying to you through the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah did great things and so can you. You can make a difference in other people's lives. You can make a difference in this world. As impossible as the task looks, anything is possible because God can and will rebuild broken cities and broken churches and broken pastors and broken people. That is the message of hope. It's all about God's mercy. It's all about God's grace. It's all about Jesus. That's gospel faith. Now, given that background, how does gospel faith turn the obstacles that we face into opportunities? Again, I found seven ways. All right? Here's the first one. Number one, gospel faith gives us the ability to see that we are where we are for a reason. Now, I didn't read it, but if you have your Bibles open, back up to the last sentence of chapter 1. What does it say? There's a seemingly throwaway line that is anything but. Nehemiah writes, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. What a coincidence. What a coincidence that a man like Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, except it's not a coincidence at all. God put Nehemiah in the palace of the king for a reason. And God put you where you are today for a reason. You're a stay-at-home mom. You got kids running around all over the place. Half the time you forget their names. The other half of the time, you call them by the name of the dog. Parents, how many of you have done that? Called them by the name of the dog. Not a proud moment. I've done it. Every day you face obstacles, rooms that are not clean at all, and kids who will fight you of getting into the car, and then will fight one another when they determine what kind of movie to watch. In the, what kind of movie to watch in the car? Y'all have movies in the car when you were a kid? No, we looked out the window like Americans. And there they are, they're fighting it out, you know, right? And you have all these obstacles, and you're tired, and you're frustrated, and God put you there for a reason. You're a student. Man, you hate school. You don't like to go to school. You'd rather be anywhere else but school. You wish there was a professional basketball league for 12-year-olds because you would sign up because playground is where you shine. And you think, why do I have to go? Why should I study? Why should I care? Why should I get dressed in the morning? And you are where you are for a reason. You're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're a healthcare worker, you're tired. Y'all have had, it, had a worse 18 months than anybody else, amen? 
and you're tired of treating people and people who won't listen to you and you're tired of the insurance companies and then when you go have lunch, you have to eat hospital food and that's no good either and you need to remember that you are where you are for a reason. There are no accidents. God's providence is perfect providence. Now, what is the reason? I don't know. But half of the fun of life is finding out. Half of the fun of life is discovering why exactly am I here? Don't you think Nehemiah was overjoyed when he realized, oh my goodness, God has given me a burden for my people of Israel, and the guy that I work for is right there, and he can do everything that I need him to do. God put Nehemiah in the palace and made him the king's official wine taster and unofficial best friend so that he could rebuild Jerusalem. He put Esther in another palace of another Persian king so that she could deliver the people of Israel from a wicked man named Haman. Maybe, stay-at-home mom, you are raising the next president of the United States. Or better, the next head coach, University of Alabama. You know, it's dream big. Maybe, healthcare worker, this person who is just frustrating you and wearing you out is having the worst day of their life. They got news that would break anyone's heart. And God put you in that hospital room so that you could talk to that person, so you could pray with that person, so you could show them the love of Jesus. Maybe God put you here in this church, in this congregation, because there's somebody else who's also here today who's going through something else that you have been through. And they are lost, and they are scared, and they don't know what to do, and they don't know how to face it, but you're here. God put you here for a reason, to comfort and encourage and help that person. When it comes to God's providence, there are no accidents. Every obstacle is an opportunity to love God and serve people right where you are. That's number one. Number two, second thing, gospel faith enables us to overcome our fears. Verse two, Nehemiah writes, very honest, he says, then I was very much afraid. Verse three, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The city of Jerusalem was in shambles, and it was in shambles because the king of Persia had told Ezra, you can read about it in the book before this one, Ezra chapter 4, he told them via a royal decree that he was no longer allowed to rebuild the city. And so when the king says to Nehemiah, what's on your mind, Nehemiah? Why are you so upset? Nehemiah's answer is essentially i'm upset because of you i'm upset because you made a decree that we were not allowed to rebuild the city of jerusalem and you were wrong now 
might I suggest to you that many powerful people do not like to be told that they are wrong, and none more so than the king of Persia, who had a proven track record of killing people who told him that he was wrong. That's what, why Nehemiah says, in perhaps one of the great understatements of all literature and history, then I was very much afraid. Here's what you need to know. Gospel faith doesn't eliminate our fears. Gospel faith helps us overcome our fears by placing our fears in the proper perspective. Gospel faith reminds us that although this world is often a very fearful place, filled with very fearful people, we ultimately have nothing to fear because of Jesus. Think about David. Was, did anyone have more reason to be afraid than David? David was just a young shepherd boy. He, share, he looks out across this field, sees a giant, a giant of a man named Goliath, who's taunting him, who's taunting Israel. He says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut you up. I'm going to feed you to the birds. And yet, he engaged. He went down into the valley and he fought the giant. Why? Well, I think he tells us in Psalm 27, verse 1, where we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He anchors his courage not on who he is, not on his past performance. He was a shepherd. He'd never even been in a battle before. He anchors his hope on the love and power of God. Here's the paradox of the gospel. If you know that God loves you, if you know that Jesus died on the cross for you, then the very worst thing that can happen to you is also the very best thing that can happen to you. Rejection leads to acceptance. Death leads to life. Sorrow leads to joy. Gospel faith enables us to overcome our fears. Here's the third thing that we see. Third thing is that gospel faith enables us to pray powerful prayers. Verse 4, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, if you were with us last week, you might remember that Nehemiah prayed for four months before he went to see the king. And then, once he got to see the king, he prayed for about four seconds before he answered the king's question. But here's the amazing thing, that Nehemiah's little four-second prayer was every bit as powerful as the prayers that he had been praying for four months. That little four-second prayer was like a tiny stick of dynamite. It was powerful. It was mighty. Here's the point. Our long prayers are just as powerful as our short prayers because the power of prayer has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. Jesus once told his disciples that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, a tiny little mustard seed, then you could say to these mountains, 
Now, granted, around here they're pretty small mountains, more like hills. It is Pensacola. But you could say to these mountains or hills, go into the heart of the sea and it will happen. Because God loves to answer his people's prayers. Now, with that saying said, God doesn't always give us exactly what we want. Amen? If you are a parent, you know that you do not always give your kids exactly what they want. But God does give us exactly what we need. One of my old pastors used to say that God, when we pray, God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that God knows. He, in other words, we often pray prayers that are far too small. And we pray selfish prayers and things that, will, that we think will make us complete. And God says, I have something even better for you. Here's what you should have asked for. And remarkably, here it is. Gospel faith enables us to pray powerful prayers. Empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Fourth thing, gospel faith enables us to make bold requests. Now, for the sake of time, I won't reread verses 5 through 8, but here's what Nehemiah asks the king of Persia to do. He was arguably the most powerful man on earth, and here's what he says. Okay, I want you to, number one, reverse the decision that you have previously made about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. I want you to let me rebuild the city of Jerusalem. I want you to protect me when I do it. I want you to send me some letters so that no one attacks me. Maybe uh, give me a couple of generals, some soldiers, a horse or two. He says, I also want you to pay for it. And also, I'm going to need 12 years off. Now, I know normally I get two weeks every year, you know, plus sick days, but it's going to be a big job. I've never rebuilt a whole city before, and, you know, given how long it's taken to build Nine Mile Road, 12 years is a pretty reasonable uh, estimate for a building project of this scope. So, you know, if I could just have that, that would be great. There's no reason for the king to grant him his requests, except God is with him. When you believe in the promises of God, there's no limit to what you can ask because there's no limit to what God can do. Gospel faith enables us to make bold requests. Fifth thing, gospel faith enables us to conquer our critics. Verse 10, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Verse 19, But when Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? If you do important things, you will receive criticism. And there is nothing more important than rebuilding the city of God for the people of God. Now, it's interesting to note that Nehemiah's critics, he, had, he received criticism from two secular people. Sanballat and Geshem were both very secular people. And he also received criticism from one religious person. 
Tobiah, whose name means God is good. Tov means good, and that little Yah at the end means God. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. So the man named God is good is not acting like it, and he's very much discouraging Nehemiah and his friends from rebuilding the city. And you pronounce it Tobiah in Hebrew, unless you're fiddling on a roof, in which case it's pronounced Tevya. Same name. Musical fans, just me, thank you. <laughs> How did Nehemiah respond to his critics? How did he respond? Did he stop? Did he quit? Did he apologize? Did he cower in the corner? Did he slink back to Persia with his tail between his legs? No. He got to work. He built a team, and then he built a city. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, Satan often uses uh, dishonest critics and dishonest criticism to discourage us from doing the work that God is calling us to do. Now, is that saying that all criticism is invalid? No, there's valid criticism. Does that mean that every critic is dishonest? Oh, you shouldn't listen. No, no, not at all. God uses us as iron sharpens iron. And yet, if we are so consumed by what the critics and the cynics and the naysayers say, we will listen to them instead of listening to God. Might I contend to you and suggest to you that there's nothing more important than listening to the voice of God. Don't let his voice be drowned out by the critics and cynics all around us. Gospel faith enables us to conquer our critics, to accomplish great things. Sixth thing, gospel faith enables us to make bold plans. In verses 11 through 17, we're told that Nehemiah went out at night, he rode on his horse, he went all around the city, and he inspected the walls of the city. Now, why did he do that? Why didn't he just start building? Well, he inspected the walls of the city so that he could build the walls of the city in the most effective and efficient way. He made bold plans to repair the city. Now, sometimes in Christian churches and among Christian people, we separate prayer and planning. Sometimes people pray without planning at all, and then sometimes people plan without praying at all. Nehemiah did both. He prayed and he planned. He planned and he prayed. Now, this may or may not come as a surprise to you, but every week when I'm working on my sermons, I plan and I pray. I first open my Bible and I pray and I ask God to show me what the passage means and to show me his glory and to show me my sin and to show me Jesus that I might see the grace of God and might be changed and empowered by it. I pray for you by name while I am preparing these sermons. But I also plan. I write down outlines and I write down ideas and I read books and I read commentaries and I do uh, language work so you can hear about Tevye, the fiddler on the roof guy. I mean, listen, you would never get that if you just read it in English. It takes planning to come up with gems like that. If you're building a house, if you're switching jobs, 
if you're make, making any important decision, you should do lots of praying and you should do lots of planning. Planning should never be the enemy of praying and praying should never be the enemy of planning. We need both. Seventh thing, last one, gospel faith enables us to claim bold promises. Verse 20 then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, and we his servants, will rise and build. But you, Sanballat, Geshem, and Tobiah, have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now when Nehemiah said that God of heaven will make us prosper, he was claiming a very specific gospel promise. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see that before the exile even happened, God said to the people, if you sin against me, I'm going to drive you out of the land, but I will bring you back home. I will bring my people back to Jerusalem. He said they would be in exile for 70 years, and guess how long they were in exile? Exactly 70 years. Now, when Nehemiah prays for for the blessings of God, the prosperity of God. He's not, he's not praying for a Bentley or a private jet or whatever we think that prosperity means. He's saying, help us, God. Restore our city. Fulfill the promises that you made to the great people of Israel. Be gracious to us. Forgive our sins. We believe. God answered that prayer. Sin tore the city down, and God's grace put it back together again. That's still the way it works today. Sin tears us down. It tears other people down. It makes a mess of this world. But the grace of God, given to the people of God, through Jesus, the Son of God, takes all of the brokenness, and all of the hurt, and all of the guilt, and all of the shame, and restores us so that we are once again the proud and joyful people of God. We'll see that as we continue on through the book of Nehemiah. The beauty of the gospel, the good news of our salvation, is that God fulfilled all of his promises in Jesus. The Son of God who was torn down you remember what it says in John chapter 2. Jesus preached to the people and he said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it again. And the people said, well, that's impossible. It took us 40 years to build the temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days? But then John notes, the temple that he spoke of was his body. See, Jesus, who is the true Israel, the true Jerusalem, the Son of God, was essentially reduced to a pile of rubble so that all of us might be built together as living stones into a new temple, the house of the living God. The world is filled with obstacles. Some are big, some are small, some come from in here, from inside of us. Some come from out there, from outside of us. But gospel faith turns obstacles into opportunities. Gospel faith, faith in Jesus, faith in the promise of God restores broken cities and broken churches and broken pastors 
and broken people. Nothing is impossible for God. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, rebuilder of broken walls, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the peace that we have because of Jesus. Pour out your heart upon us. Pour out your love. Give us prosperity in all that we do. Not as the world measures prosperity, but prosperity that reflects the values and the hope of the kingdom of God. Hear us, for we pray in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen.